Hello and welcome to Fork Tongues, conversations with foreigners living in France. I'm Derek Rawson. I'm from Australia, but have been living in France for more than 10 years now. First in Paris and now in Poitiers. This podcast is my way of reconnecting with my love of France and French culture, a love that had been worn down over the years by the realities of daily life. Now, through my conversations with other foreigners living here, learning about their experiences of living in France and sharing my own, I'm doing just that. And I hope to share my renewed passion with all you listeners out there and also draw back the curtain on what life in France is really like, at least from a foreigner's perspective. For this episode, number four of the Forked Tongues journey, I had the pleasure of speaking with Mark Jordan, a tall and bearded Irishman whose imposing stature is matched only by his affable nature. Regular Forked Tongue listeners, with your astute powers of observation, will have noticed that Mark shares the same last name as my guest from episode one, Peter Jordan. This is not a coincidence. Mark is indeed Peter's brother and co-owner of the Cluricorn Cafe, the Irish pub I discussed with Peter, and the place where my conversation with Mark took place. Despite the setting, our conversation was a sober one, by which I mean alcohol-free, not serious and solemn. And I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to Mark discuss his experience of life in France and what it is to be a brew pub owner and head brewer as much as I did. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for being here and for being a part of the Forked Tongues adventure. No problem. I'm looking forward to our conversation today for different reasons. One of which is that, as you know, I interviewed your brother, Peter Jordan, for the first episode of the podcast. And you need a fact checker. (laughs) That's right, yes. So he talked a bit about your family connection to France and your early visits here as as young men, young teenagers, I believe. Um, So I'm interested to find out what memories you have of growing up in a French-speaking, if I may say that, Irish family and and your first impressions of France when you came as a (laughs) child. I was, I think I was 13 when we first started coming regularly. Our first summer uh, was when my mum finally made contact with her childhood friend who, with whom she had stayed when she was uh, brought over by her dad to Normandy when they were small. And uh, yeah, we were on a, on a camping holiday to, to down this direction, actually, Royan or La Rochelle or somewhere. All stuffed into a Volvo, five kids or four and a half. Jenny was about this size. And we used to bring a, used to bring a load of wine back with the dirty laundry in the, in the car in the boot. So we got to we got to where was it Alençon in Normandy, and we were told that that uh, mum's friend was her her man was mayor of the town. So we met them on the on the car park in front of the in front of the mairie and waited. We were all sitting in the car, kind of we'd been driving and, and on the ferry for for days or hours, or, and it all started there. So we met this family, and and uh, she didn't even know what they what what it'd be like, and it turned out that she had kids. Uh, not surprisingly, who were about the same age as us, or at least one. The other two, well, she had three kids who were about the same age, uh, two of whom were heavily handicapped uh, and one who wasn't. And we started exchanges, I suppose, uh, from that summer on. The first meeting was just a meeting up while we went to, while we went to down to south. And then when we came back up, we, we, we bumped into them again. And every summer afterwards, and when we were old enough, myself and Pete would come over for a month on our own to stay with them. And so our first experience of France was this, this family in Alonso. Were you able to speak French when you came and visited the family? Yeah, we'd all started, what age was I, 13? So I was already in first class where I was doing French lessons, but we had started doing, learning a bit of French with uh, a private French teacher that, that mum had found, or somebody who knew French, uh, a little bit younger. So we had kind of very basic basics. But the important thing was that we picked up the accent and, you know, as you know, kids would pick it up fast. So, so Peter would have been about 15, I was 13, and the others were even younger. So they all picked it up even younger. 
and French was already a thing in your family. Peter said that your grandfather spoke French, or that he actually mainly swore in French. Yeah, he spoke, apparently he said, uh, people. He was he was Russian or Armenian, or born in South South Armenia. A bit of a foggy story. I think he spoke about six or seven languages. And uh, the French people we knew told us that his French was better than his English. And he spoke to us in English, but with a heavy kind of Russian-ish accent. Although he was brought up in Baghdad, so there was a whole mix of kind of accents that he had. And so yeah, there was a bit of French spoken in the family. My mom would have been fluent when she was younger but we didn't speak French in the house or anything it was just but it was activated when we went on holidays to France which was pretty much every year after well, that what was that atmosphere like in the French family the father was the mayor of the local town yeah he was was he yeah he was mayor yeah yeah uh, he was, Peter said he was a deputy he uh, since went on to be deputy at the time he was mayor I was trying to think back and she was a school teacher she wasn't retired at that stage the atmosphere was we found it I mean there it was a lovely family it was great kind of the first years you're 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 exploring France as all these you know this they start eating at midday and you're still eating at four o'clock in the afternoon and you're and you're you're as a kid you get kind of bored and you don't know what dish is coming next and because you don't understand anything you don't know if you've finished the meal and you're still hungry or if you should be holding on and then a chicken comes out or something and that was all kind of obviously you're immersed in it as a youngster and then as we got older kind of 14 15 16 every summer we found it a little bit boring because they didn't have the same kind of pub culture as we did and we were growing up in ireland 16 17 18 and you're already drinking and even if you're not in the pubs or you're or you're trying to figure out how to get drinking and we go out with uh, with their son and when you say right so will you go to one of the cafes and you'd go to a cafe and they'd all order their their demi and you'd be like you may not have a pint <laughs> and it's okay you have a pint all these Irish they really drink yeah and uh, after and after uh, one or two drinks they go home and you'd be kind of hanging going right well okay that's so there was a little bit of disappointment in the social life um, and whenever you could kind of push them to go out. Plus that Bertrand was a, was a pretty reserved kid, so he wouldn't have been a... But the, the, the interesting thing with hindsight was that that was our France. France for us was, they don't drink a lot. They're, they spend a lot, a lot of time eating. Very nice people, you know, they, there's great food, and but there's some kind of social life is lacking. Because like, we didn't see any other France, we just saw this. And as, as you said, Eve went on to become a, a deputy. Um, he was a UMP deputy, so we were in a pretty conservative family in living the life of a, of a, of a pretty reserved uh, a son. So France was interesting at the start to discover this, the culture and then after a while you're just looking for something to do or at least that's half of what I uh, grew up with but those are exchanges as well like you're you're not necessarily matched with your best friend so you're, you're not going to hit gold from, from minute one and that was organised <coughs> privately like your parents organised yeah, the exchange yeah. with their family oh, yeah that was privately well yeah I mean mum and his mum were childhood friends basically they'd done the same thing she was in a family d'accueil with her two sisters three sisters I think all of them were there um, and Monique uh, not Monique Monique's one of the sisters Mary Noel had sisters as well so they were girls that all got on together and they would go over every summer because my granddad worked in Paris you still in touch with the family at all or is your family still in touch uh, the family are still very much in touch with the family yeah yeah. Mary Noel died of a heart attack quite suddenly a couple of years ago and that was kind of a shock to everyone because she was kind of the, herself and mum were the bits that kept the families together Bertrand we've since grown a bit apart from but Susan my sister is, is still in touch with them they have kids about the same age and he's still in touch with mum and dad a lot and Eve who's the husband who's now retired is still in touch with mum and dad as well so there's still a lot of contact there but uh but we've we've kind of grown apart in our in our interests and in our in our lives i suppose 
So when did you first come to Poitiers? Uh, <laughs> did Peter tell this story? No. <laughs> uh, when did I first come to Poitiers? Peter moved to Poitiers when I moved to London. I came out of my master's. Peter came out of his PhD. He had a postdoc here and I got a job in a bank in London. I was in IT, so I was seduced by, uh, by, by the city and by the money of a bank coming out of college and also by the IT, particularly by the IT systems. And so I was in London and knew nobody and Peter was in Poitiers and he knew nobody. And Ryanair did flights for nothing. Mm-hmm. And I quickly figured out that it was cheaper to come to Poitiers on a Ryanair flight, spend the weekend here and go out to the Chloricome inevitably at the time and uh, eat, eat, eat out and eat great food. And it was cheaper to do all of that pound for pound than to spend one weekend in London and go out one night wow. because of the difference in the exchange rate and because of price, obviously. So we did it a fair bit. So I'd come over regularly enough. Sometimes Pete came up to Paris and we watched a rugby match. He didn't come up to London, surprisingly. I suppose I was looking to get away. And so uh, that was when was that? 2001, I'd say. 2002, maybe. Yeah, between 2001 and 2005. Because I then left London in 2005. I went traveling by myself, backpacking all over the place. Europe, around the world? Around the world, yeah. I went from, I didn't do South America or America. I'd already done North America for summer, a few summers. So I went east to to Southeast Asia uh, and then down to Indonesia, Malaysia. Spent a couple of weeks in Australia on my way to a month in New Zealand. And then a couple of weeks in Australia on my way back seeing people in Sydney and in Adelaide that I knew. And then I was about to head to India. Uh, no, I was about to head to Sri Lanka um, on the 24th of December, whatever year the tsunami was. Uh, and it hit uh, like a day before um, I was supposed to go. And so I, I froze and watched everything. But I had one of these flights where you can you can delay, you can push the flights on, but you still have to go through the cities. So a couple of weeks later, I flew into Colombo or flew over Colombo or what was left of it um, and flew out straight away again to, to India. So I skipped the, but we flew over Sri Lanka like about a week later and it was just uh, these muddy, there was no coastline. It was just this kind of muddy, vague uh, uh, vase. I was going to say, what's, what's, what's the English for vase? Mud. Mud. Yes. Um, and went out to India and so I came home from, and after India I came back and I came back to France directly actually I came I flew into London and I came to surprise Peter and all the family actually they've forgotten about that they were they were all, all over for the christening of one of Bertrand's children and so I decided I'd frighten the, the, the bejesus out of everyone and, and I only got on to Peter's girlfriend at the time and told nobody else knew um, and so I flew into London and got a plane to Paris and got all the way down here and I just walked into the church and they all nearly fell off their seats I'd been away for a year I'd, I'd been sick in India India, I, I lost, I don't know how much weight, and nobody was expecting me. And so that was great crack. Uh, <laughs> Did you have the big beard as well? At the I time? didn't have a beard, but I'd grown my hair. So I had these big, long, blonde, curly, I've, I've really curly hair, uh, or had before it all started disappearing. And I grew, and I'd, so I had a big head of hair on me. So they didn't actually know, recognize me at first. They were kind of looking at me going, who the hell is that tan, dirt, skinny, sick looking guy? And so that just shows that what, what I what I didn't hadn't realized yet was that what I wanted was to keep traveling. Um, and so that would have been in 2006, I suppose. And you moved to Poitiers then? or not? Yeah, yeah. and that, after that I decided, well, what am I going to do? I went back to see uh, a girl that I'd been seeing in London. I uh, went back to Ireland for a bit, saw friends, and then decided I wanted to, to keep traveling, but didn't want to know where I wanted to go. I knew I didn't want to be in a big city. And I thought, Peter's in Poitiers, let's try that. I go down there. He bought a house out in the country, way out in the country, in, in the Setneuf, down in uh, Les Deux Sèvres. And I went down there and started building websites for people locally from his place. Uh, but I'd spent all my money. I didn't even have a car. And we were out in the middle of nowhere. It was kind of... <laughs> Kind of back to back, to yeah, back to basics. But I mean, I'd been I'd been backpacking and squatting for a year, so it didn't really put me off too much. So my first experience of living in in France was in the countryside in Les Deux Sèvres, 
back of beyonds with no car. <laughs> we, did, we did talk about that briefly because I was asking Peter about the sort of gap, if it exists, between the rural France and yeah. the kind of city France. Yeah. And uh, he, he sort of talked about that experience. Skinning rabbits with the neighbours. Well, he mentioned the neighbour who uh, sort of, for him, um, Poitiers was this distant uh, metropolis uh, right, uh, across the, across the border of the, yeah, the regional border. The local village was probably as distant metropolis as well by the looks of them. It was good fun, though. So for listeners, it's probably come as a bit of a surprise uh, uh, that not only are you two brothers in, in Poitiers, there's three of you here, That's three right. Irish brothers who arrive in, in Poitiers and yeah. live in Poitiers. I mean, you've explained sort of your joining Peter. How did that happen for, for Stephen as well? Steve came later. Steve had been in Spain. So Steve studied French and Spanish in college and had been in San Sebastian and then in Santiago de Compostela and spent a year Erasmus in Santiago um, and was now as fluent in Spanish or better than he was in French. And his French was up to our standards. So he was, he had three, he was trilingual. And then he moved back to Dublin, I think, and started working as a translator in Dublin, but figured out pretty quickly that he didn't want to be in Ireland, that he wanted to keep traveling as well. So it's kind of the same reason, if you think about it. He, he wanted to go to, to a French or Spanish speaking country easiest option is is to stay in the EU because it's true we, we can travel and work where we want and we were in Poitiers so his idea as was mine at the time was to come to Poitiers to find a base and then to move towards the coast I'd taken up surfing when I was away Steve was getting into it as well and kind of the dream go live on a beach somewhere and work work at something locally and and my, what kept me here was uh, I found a good job after a year or two uh, and then met Dorothy and one thing led to another and you realise that you're not too far from the coast or from large cities if you have to be. Um, and Steve was kind of the same, I suppose. Uh, he had the support of two brothers, found work in university and, and it went from there. So yeah, it was all Peter's fault. That we <laughs> So this is the first time I've recorded a conversation outside of my home and here we are in the upstairs office of the Cluricorm Cafe. That's right. Hidden away. That's right. I've never been up here before, but... Uh, this is where I hide from the noise. Can you tell me a bit about the, the experience of, of the chloroquine first when you arrived? Because Yeah. When we arrived, well, Peter brought me here uh, the first time, I suppose, and, and uh, we inst- I instantly loved it. We used to go to Buck Mulligan's first, which, was, which is now the drop and shoot, uh, which used to be uh, an Irish pub as well. And they had Murphy's direct from Cork. So we used to go into Buck Mulligan's for a pint of Murphy's and then we come over here because there wasn't a lot of atmosphere in Buck Mulligan's. And the Chloricombe was our local. It was our home away from home. Philippe had a handy, he'd a, he'd a good eye for, for what he wanted to do at the start. He set up this place with the with the team of an Irish pub in mind. It's Philippe Papaya. Philippe Papaya, who's the, who's the founder of the Chloricombe 25 years ago. And so, yeah, when we got here, well, that was 2002 would have been my first experience. So he'd only opened it six years before. And it was the crack that the Chloricombe is, 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 known, is known for, uh, where everyone and anyone is, is welcome. You can have a suit or a punk in here and it can be an 18 year old or a, or, a, or a 60 year old having their pint of Guinness which is what an Irish pub is all about really so we were instantly drawn to the pace and uh, and I didn't really look for anyone else to go out uh, and any time I did I was a little bit disappointed because it didn't have the same atmosphere and I suppose uh, uh, open mindedness of you know, there's no protocol there was no Was it much of a party town or was there much nightlife or were there still this, all the students there that there are today? Oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah there were always yeah parties it's one of the things that saved Poitiers from becoming Angoulême or Limoges or somewhere as a massive student population so yeah there was and as as always a lot of parties happened in and still do in people's apartments and houses and then they go out afterwards talking about like young students because they don't have a lot of cash so when we were i mean we were i was younger obviously so you'd end up going to somebody's place going out to the pub uh, going back to somebody's place again 
yeah, so the chloroquine was was our was our local. We'd at the end of each at the end of each week, either myself or Peter would send a message on a Friday afternoon, and depending on who was distracted first or sent it first, and it was just a one word pub, um, and the other one responded, and we'd meet here and take it from there. Peter said that it was your idea, or that you sort of first put the words to the idea <laughs> to. <laughs> to take it over if it was ever for sale probably was my idea yeah how did that start after a few pints i think yeah. after a few pints yeah yeah after a few pints sitting at a bar at the bar with philippe who'd been through his alcoholic uh, phase i suppose he never come out of an alcoholic phase but he was now sober and passed by with his coffee at about midnight and uh, we'd heard rumors or even if we hadn't we were all a bit worried as everybody was and the girl comes philippe was pushing on he'd been sick everyone's thinking jesus if philippe sells this place you know we'd seen the buck mulligan's turn into the drop and shoot we'd seen the rugby bar which was even older turn into a phone store across from Les Cernes somewhere and these, these places had a lot of character and then they just disappeared and everybody was getting a bit worried about what would happen here so I think I grabbed Philippe a bit inebriated uh, late one night and said Philippe if you ever uh, think about selling here if you ever if you ever want to get rid of the chloroquine you know don't do it without talking to us come and talk to us and I remember vividly he turned around to me and possibly the most lucid I've ever seen him looked me straight in the eye and went okay that's all he said. And he walked away and I thought, and I looked at Peter and I went, do you think that was a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of years later, I got a call from a friend of mine who's an estate agent who said, uh, I hear Philippe's looking to sell the chloroquine. And I went, no. So I called up Philippe or I got in contact with him and said, uh, and, and asked him. And so we exchanged a bit. And I think I, 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 got, I got a call from the estate agent and then I called Peter. It's the first thing I did. Uh, and we thought, Jesus, is this possible? Could we do that? Uh, how would it work? All the questions that kind of, we hadn't been looking for a business opportunity. We weren't looking to start a bar. We had our own jobs. You know, we were we were on our own career paths. But, but as soon as the question was asked, both of us, you could see, kind of both kind of thought about how we could possibly do it. And he gave us very little time because a lot of people were interested. In particular, there were the large distiller. No, they're not distillers. They they're, they're, they call them breweries, but they're not Cronenberg. Uh, they're, what are they, conglomerates. So they're, they're, they're massive businesses, basically. And they were function more like banks than they did breweries at the time. They brewed their basic beers and then they loaned money out to or financed the, the buying of bars or restaurants or whatever they might be so that you'd then be in contract with them and you'd sell their beer for however many years and they were all knocking on the door with potential buyers and Philippe said look there are people that want to there's a lot of people interested but if you guys are interested I know that you'll you know treat it the right way and, and that you'll you know you, you belong here then I'll sell it to you but that's my price and I'm not moving and you have two weeks <laughs> And uh, and so that was clear cut. And, and uh, with Peter, we thought, right, well, how the hell could we do this? So the next call was to the girls, Dorothy and Anne, to see if if it could work and if they'd be okay with with because it's it's a big it's a big choice. Like and bit by bit, we got there. We uh, we had to finance it, and the, the brewing brewing conglomerates were all behind us. Uh, if we if we signed our, our our souls away to the devil for eight years or whatever, um, and we had we found a little bit of cash that in the end uh, came from our granddad. Uh, whose fault it was that we're in France in the first place. So that's kind of fitting. Uh, he put money away and we didn't know about it. So we, we put that money in to start here, basically, which is just pretty interesting. I'm sure he'd be proud of us. <laughs> and how long, how many years later was it that you decided to stop your day job and focus? Uh... Uh, that didn't happen for a while. When we buy, we bought into that, actually did. We bought in 2012 and I gave up the day job in 2016, 2017. So yeah, it was only four or five years. Must have been um, in a very intense period. 
Well, it kind of happened naturally, actually, because um, I I was working, I'd been working for 10 years with an event management company, to put it simply. And I was, I'd, I'd kind of moved up the ranks, went through develop, I was a web developer and I ended up managing the, the, the technical department for them and traveling a lot. But I could see that that company was going slightly downhill and that there wasn't going to be a future for it if, if the people running it didn't move their, their, their backsides and do something about it. And they weren't doing that and it was getting more and more frustrating. So I was looking for an out from that job, but I wasn't quite ready yet. And Sylvain, who we had brought in to manage the Pluricom, who was a, a, a barman who had worked here for a long time and who had a business head on his shoulders, was coming to the end of like he'd done four or five years and he was ready to move on. And so the, these things all came to a head. I negotiated a rupture conventionnelle, uh, which guaranteed uh, some form of salary for two years from my old company. On condition, they made me, they, I said, one of the, the conditions was that I work for them for another six months as a, a sole trader, as, a, as an independent. To finish up a couple of forums, they, they organized uh, for business forums abroad. And so I stopped my statue as uh, an, um, an employee with them. We gave Sylvain a rupture conventionnelle from here, from the pub, and I took over his functions. And with Sylvain, we opened the Houblon. So there's kind of moving the thing along. And so I started up the Cava, Cava Bière, the Houblon with Sylvain. He would do the, 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 most of the hours in that. I would take over his hours here. And on the side, I had six months of business forms to do with. Uh, so that was kind of intense. And we were also expecting our second kid, <laughs> which was another reason for stopping the other job because I was doing a lot of traveling. Uh, I was traveling at that stage. So I was going to all of their forums. There's about 15 of them a year. So, and that's a week abroad per forum. Um, so it's, you know, it was great at the start when I was single and I'd bring Dorothy with me and kind of, but once you got kids being a week away regularly, it gets to be a pain in the ass pretty quick. So that was all, it was all kind of natural, you know, that it, that it had a business that was running well here. There was a lot to develop. We were just getting into craft beer ourselves, myself and Silva in particular. We brought a little bit in here, but we still had the end of a contract with Cronenberg. So we have to get out of that before we can do independent beers. And so there was a kind of a, some kind of a future looking, looking interesting in front of me. So yeah, I started, uh, so once the other job finished up, uh, started working here and I was brewing at home already. And one thing led to another. How did you get into brewing? Was it something you did here or you'd done it previously? No, I hadn't done it previously, no. No, it started here. Uh, actually, at my 40th birthday party, the staff and Peter bought me a brewing kit, a home brew kit. And as I said, myself and Silva in particular had only just been getting into craft beer and we couldn't get a whole lot of it at the time here. The distributors weren't up and running, the craft, the independent craft distributors. That's all new in the last four or five years. It's changed a lot, hasn't it? It has changed enormous, yeah. I mean, we, we were, any any new beer we could find was, you know, it was amazing. We picked up a bottle from uh, the Contrat Irlandais and it was like, this is like a Scottish stout, it's like 10% or something. This was amazing. We'd try and get it in here as quick as possible and sell it. And, you know, we're getting one bottle in at a time. And Whereas now I, I have 10 emails a day from national distributors wanting to sell all sorts of beers from all over the place. So we're getting interested in it and they bought me a, a, a kit and I started brewing at home. So that was in 2016. What was the first beer you brewed? <laughs> can't remember it was a stout or a pale ale i can't remember i think it turned out pretty well because i had the help of a friend who had already brewed a little bit already i think we went for a stout uh and it was pretty good actually surprisingly i did a lot of failures after that but but that one turned out pretty well and that friend is actually now a uh, production manager for lady bush jonathan we did we did uh lady bush is one of the fairly well known is it yeah probably uh, one of the yeah would be in one well be in the top 10 french uh, uh, craft breweries i wouldn't call it a microbrewery anymore and and one of the best known internationally yeah and it's only down in angoulême so pretty close but Jonathan and I brewed together in my place on weekends and then did a training course in Saint-Nicolas-de-Port, which is near Nancy in the east. 
which is there's a museum, uh, Le Musée de la Brasserie Française, which goes back through the hundreds of years of French brewing. And they do a course which isn't isn't too expensive and was one of the only two or three courses at the time. There are a couple more now. And you went for a full week of intensive kind of beer training. And a lot of the people we did that training with, was about 15 of us, are now uh, have now started up their own breweries as well. And so actually that's where the idea for here came from. One thing leads to another. We were going because we wanted to learn more about making beer. The, most of the other people that were there coming from Brittany, the south of France, all over the place, they all had a project in mind. And so on one of the days of the training session, they asked us, so what, what's your project? And we said, well, actually, we don't have one. But what's our project going to be, Jonathan? Jonathan was out of work at the time and I'd taken over here and I thought, well, we could brew in the Clericum. We could do a brew pub. We're, we're going to do a brew pub. So the whole week was about constructing our project. So we basically put together a project, a business plan and, and all the technical parts of how to brew downstairs in the Clericum at that uh, at that training session without even believing that we were going to really going to do it and would it be possible and that's what i ended up doing and how soon after that uh, training session or that course did you actually start or when did you sell your first kind of beer in the from the pub we sold the first beer here in summer of 2018 i think we started brewing in the summer of 2018 yeah so Probably two years later, yeah. It's not called a Clericom beer. What's no, the name of the... the... The the brew pub and the beer is called Bior. Bior has a number of different meanings. and was chosen because it's unpronounceable to most French people. And probably most other people who aren't Irish, actually. I didn't want to say it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were, we were sitting around with uh, with uh, another French friend, uh, uh, Xavier, uh, with Peter, and thought, well, what are we going to call? You know, we have to call it something. We can't call it the Clericom beer. And we were throwing out all sorts of complex and, and very witty names and, and we said hang on what's Irish for beer so I wrote it down and I showed it to Zevi and said Zevi and pronounced that and he said beware beware boire boire sounds like boire which is drink and myself and Peter went nuts and said right we're calling it that and so it was easy catchy and uh, and it means something it, so it means beer in Gaelic in Irish which apparently comes from the Norse uh, or Viking for beer which is very close something like boire boire and apparently English beer comes from, from that as well. The Vikings would have polluted uh, 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 most of Europe with their, with their beers and their, and their accents. So apparently, it, anyway, that's, and it also means in Cork, Bjor is slang for girl, uh, like the equivalent of man in the States. So men are fiends, F-E-E-N, which is the name of one of our beers. And, and the women are Bjors. So that was kind of a, a clan day to, to everyone in Cork, which nobody in Potia gets, but we don't care. <laughs> so, so how many different beers have you brewed now? Oh, God. I have a sheet that I need to update today, actually, because we, we, every time you brew a beer, you have to check in with the Duan, which is the excise customs every month, because we pay them, obviously, based on the alcohol that you produce. So I think we're on number 110, but that doesn't count all the beers I brewed at home. So that's they're the beers we brewed here. Do you first make a batch at home to think maybe you will, this could be something that we could brew in the pub? Initially, yeah, I suppose I did. I took a couple of my homebrew recipes and tried them out here. But uh, to be honest, we now just brew. We get an idea of a beer and brew it directly on the system downstairs. Or you take a, a recipe that you've already brewed and tweak it a little bit. So I say 110, they're not individual beers. But uh, but the idea of the brewery here isn't to make the same beers all the time. We're not an industrial large scale brewery and most of it goes out on tap. Although since COVID, we've started bottling a lot. So the idea is to experiment with each beer to improve it or change it or make some kind of version of it. See what works that's one of the pleasures of working in a brew pub is you see what works with customers see what the feedback that people give you and on um, between that and what you like or dislike about the beer you you evolve evolve that beer it's a very precise science and, and art i guess yeah it's a mix of the two yeah and it is very precise yeah it's got the precision of of 
baking and, and pâtisserie in that if you change your temperature or your, or your raw materials by a small bit you can change the beer a lot also the yeast can change the beer completely so all that is very precise and scientific which is I suppose the IT side of me loves uh, you can spend days and weeks on, on just a recipe and then the artistic side is kind of like cooking I suppose which which I can spend a lot of time doing as well you just come up with a new sauce throw in a few more ingredients and see what happens and then there's a whole presentation side and how you sell it and so yeah it's kind of it's pretty interesting to, to play around with beer being made locally in well in France it's not really surprising but France in I think most people's minds is much more associated with wine than beer yeah. hearing about the, the museum in the east the centuries old history of, of beer in France is kind of is interesting yeah. how have your beers been received by, by French people and what do you think about the place of beer today in, in France is it it's evolving fast the beers have been well received because the, the, the beer market is evolving fast as well. We didn't, like I didn't open the, the Cava beer with Silva and start brewing here if, you know, I wouldn't have done all that if there wasn't an interest in it. So people are very receptive to new beers, as they are in pretty much more and more in every country. Give or take a year or two, most apart from the States who got into it earlier. So it would have been in the 70s or the 80s. But again, it was very small then and the mass kind of the, the majority of the population would have been into it. You were even very much a part of the, the launch of the Poitou Beer Festival. Yeah, yeah well, it kind of started in the Houblon, actually, in the Cava Beer. Poitou was, was ripe for some kind of a, of a festival. And we were all, you know, the more we bumped into other uh, professionals, other Cavists in Poitou or other bars, that we were all going through this evolution of going from the classic uh, Belgian German styles, which were the premium beers at the time that differentiated from kind of French Cronenberg and Grimberg and all that crap. And and so everyone was saying, well, you know, there are more and more festivals. We should organize a festival. We were very close to Bordeaux, Bordeaux Beer Festival, which is now called the Blib. And and uh, so we said, well, we have to start something. So it kind of started. It was born out of conversations in the in the Humblon, in the Cav. And yeah, I was in, in and still am in the group that organizes that and just became its president last year because... Nobody else wanted to talk about it. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I don't know if there's congratulations in store. But, but yeah, no, it's good. It's, it's a great movement. And it's brought all of the professionals in the craft beer industry in Poitiers together, which has been really interesting. Uh, brewers, cavists, bar owners, barmen, and beerologues, of which there are more and more who are beer specialists. What do you think about uh, pairing beer with food? It works great, and it should be done more. <laughs> it's not It's not really an Irish thing, is it? Uh, so much pairing beer and food? Or? It's becoming more and more. I mean, it's not... Well, it wasn't really a French thing either. The French are more open, or were more open to it on a popular level because uh, the French pairing of wine and, and food is, is obviously very old. But they're still a bit uh, against it. To give an example, I said we were clo- close to the Bordeaux Beer Festival. And in their second or third year, they managed to get help from the mairie in Bordeaux, who would finance the, the venue, which can cost an awful lot. So this was great. They were, they were ready to set up their, uh, their festival. They had international breweries, they had French breweries, they had local breweries. And a week before, the town hall, whatever committee was managing that, met together and decided that they weren't going to give them the venue. Or they were, but they were going to move it to somewhere else because they were a little bit too... It had too much prominence where it was. And they said, Bordeaux isn't a beer city, it's a wine city. So there was lobbying from the wine crowd uh, that basically suppressed the festival and they were given another venue, but with a week be- week to go. So it kind of impacted, obviously, on the amount of people that they could communicate to and which made them the next year take the the uh, building on the main square by the river and pay a lot of money for it to to have a presence in the middle of Bordeaux won't say beer is for Bordeaux too so there was a there was this battle between beer and wine in Bordeaux which is very interesting to watch and so yeah to go back to your question beer pairing is 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 very easy and can be very interesting and in the Houblon we did a lot of it with local restaurants and the cheese shop as well I believe yeah and the chocolate and Frank the chocolate shop yeah 
works very well with you could do a whole we did whole courses with with restaurants where we propose a, a glass of beer and a glass of wine with each course and they matched perfectly no no it's a great it's 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 a very rich it's a very rich domain you can go through a a, a lot of different styles of of beers and match them with a lot of different things it's it's a really interesting time to be working in beer where do you see the your your brew pub going in the future uh, i hesitate to say the name i'm embarrassed <laughs> hopefully not downhill with covid i don't know we're we're same as most businesses we're we're adapting and we have to adapt and reinvent ourselves this winter is going to be hard obviously for everyone covid as i said earlier on we're we bottle beer since the lockdown confinement in in france because i had five fermenters full of beer downstairs and we had to do something with them and we obviously weren't going to be tapping any beer soon so i started that's where knowing all the local breweries and and professionals helped out i ran around uh, for a couple of weeks getting bottles and and labels and caps and and we'd come in here i'd come in here uh, on a quiet lockdown day and, and bottle beer and um born out of that and now i now bottle a portion of all of the of all of the brews so that's one way of kind of diversifying the the pub will depend on how long people are allowed to go out and in pubs we have to work on on protecting people outside from wind and rain if we can because uh, it's easier to do it in a pub than in a restaurant people are more likely to have have a have a smoke and a beer than they will sit outside with a meal so we need to play to that but we also need to prepare ourselves for a hard winter like that's there's no two ways about that you used to put on a fair bit of live music have you done that since uh, yeah i know we can't no, there are about 30 or 35 seats inside in the pub, even though our gay, our, our jauge is 70. And, and what works in the, what the, this pub works in the winter when it's, when you've got a pub, an Irish pub atmosphere, which is a lot of people crammed inside having great fun. And we can't do that, obviously, now. So concerts are, are out of the question, but I just started looking into, I have to do something. And I think a lot of people are going to be going through a dark period this, this winter, um, with the lack of concerts and, and animation and stuff. So I've, so I've gotten on to the guy who was managing a, who's going to manage the programming of the in the clerk on this this winter and we're trying to find local or not so far away acts who can play on their own so acoustic concerts that, that we're going to call uh, le tabouret du pu so people who can who can take up just the space of a of a stool a bar stool and a mic on the stage and allow us to get as many people seated as we can with social distancing uh, in place and have small kind of quiet uh, concerts that will give some kind of atmosphere and something to look forward to uh, once a week so I'm it's not confirmed yet but I'm looking into financing of that through uh, through various grants, uh, cultural grants, and see if we can put it together. What do you think of live music locally and musical talent in Poitiers? There's great live music in Poitiers. It's pretty rich of many different sorts. There's a lot of great musicians in Poitiers. Most of them are regulars in the Chloricombe. That's kind of where Chloricombe's base has always been intermittent spectacle and students. And now that it's been open for 25 years, you have retired intermittent spectacle and people who have real jobs. Um, so yeah, there's loads, of, there's loads of great live music. And that's one of the things that we will have said to everyone who was supposed to play here in, uh, before the confinement was uh, as soon as we get back to any kind of a normal schedule, the local groups are first. So this Tabouret du Clou, once we get it up and running, will have a lot of local musicians coming in doing an acoustic act it'll be great to get some kind of animation back into the pub to see if we can get something working even on a very small level and put a smile on people's faces and on ours because pretty depressing without it do you listen to much <clears throat> french music uh, like outside of the pub even just I did not as much as I did at the start when I first came to France. Was that uh, something you did to improve your French or improve your ears? Yes and no. It was. I suppose no. It was, I suppose it was. Yeah, but it was also out of the joy of discovering uh, uh, French music and, and understanding lyrics more and more. When I first started working, uh, when I finally got out of Peter's house and found an apartment in Potty, I was across from. Uh, I was in a studio across from music students. We shared the same garden, and they uh, they were in, in my place one night, and we were they were talking about musicians, and they said uh, Georges Brassens, Georges Brassens. 
Boston's. And I said, who's, who's this George Boston's you're talking about? And everybody, there was about 10 people in the room. Everybody stopped talking and looked at me. And the guy who was my neighbor turned around and said, Mark, I said, no, no, I don't. He goes, je m'occupe de toi. And so the next day I had CDs and books and I had no idea who this guy was. So I kind of got into French music properly through Georges Brassens and thought it was amazing. The lyrics and the, and the music, and it was all played on, a, on an acoustic guitar, which, which I play. So I spent a lot of time kind of going through a lot, of the, a lot of that music and all of the, that style of music that Mona went on and afterwards. Are there other artists that made an impression on you following um, Les Têtes Raides was a, was a great, was a, yeah. Peter mentioned them as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised, yeah. Yeah, Têtes Raides kind of did for French uh, traditional music, I suppose you'd call it, uh, what Christy Moore would have done for Irish traditional music if anyone knows Christy Moore kind of not modernized it but brought it back into the popular kind of sphere for a certain generation George Brassens is, is genius uh, level music and, and lyrics like he was really bang on uh, but it's a little bit less accessible because it's more you know the, the George Brassens stuff because it can be quite intellectually he's got his own language Tet Red Tet Red was much more popular it's kind of the punk not punk rock but it was kind of a far, far more accessible version of it What do you think about French singers singing in English today? It seems to be more and more common Yeah, I don't know why they do that. It's kind of annoying for me. I don't know. I suppose it's to give them more of a popular base so that it can be sold elsewhere. I don't know. I haven't quite... uh it kind of makes me feel a bit uneasy unless they're doing you know a lot of the, the French local singers who sing in English if they're doing covers then I can understand it they're like covering a song there's some of the local guys who have original stuff that they sing in English some of it is because they've spent time in Canada for example so it's bilingual and there and you can see where it's coming from and other stuff just seems to be because I don't know rock rock music to them is is can be very English speaking in, in general but it, I, I don't know I don't find it I think they should, they should sing in French you mentioned the Irish singer before Are there things about Ireland that you miss? Do you, I mean, do you get back very often? And... At the moment, the pub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unsurprisingly, all the pubs are all closed there, so it doesn't make any... Uh, what do I miss? Talking in English, as you said at the start, yeah, speaking in English. But uh, but I speak to my kids in English, so I speak English all the time. I speak to Peter and Steve in English, so it's not too bad. How do your yeah. kids do with English from you and French from Dorothy their mother? Uh, they have no problem with it. I don't I don't enforce anything. I just speak to them in English. They can take it or leave it. They speak back to me in French most of the time. Fionn, who's the eldest, is seven, will will switch into English every now and again. And if they really want anything, they have to speak to me in English. So that's easy enough because that's not forcing them because they, they want something. And it means that that they uh, that they don't feel forced to speak it. But you know. A lot of our games are in English, so they kind of pick it up that way. Do you think they feel a bit Irish? Do they, is there a connection? Yeah, there? definitely. Yeah, yeah. And again, anytime I speak, I talk about Ireland or, or anything Irish, you make it fun. So it's immediately ludic and it's an English word, it's French ludic. Uh, and so it's more about a game than anything else. And they'll, I'm hoping that, and they're already, they're already getting there. Actually, Fionn in school now, who's in what do they call it? His fast CP is in, is it C M After CP, C is it? Say, well, I'm only just getting there. I mean, I've never been to school in France, so I'm only learning that. Yeah, me too. And so Fionn is now discovering, you know, they're starting to, to learn a couple of English words and he's discovering that he's kind of the star of the show. So that's that'll play to him. Similar way that we, when we realise that we are there, our French was better than most people in the school, that you were suddenly kind of, it was an easy subject. So I know they'll have that advantage and, and they'll make the most out of it. And we'll send them off to Ireland as soon as everyone stops being sick. <laughs> are you a French citizen? No. no. Do you ever uh, think about it? Yeah, I need to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's just a formality and I can keep my Irish citizenship, so there's no reason not to. The easy way to do it is to marry, but neither myself nor Dorothy have much interest in doing that yet. What are the advantages of being a French citizen? To vote. Yeah. That's, the, that's the main one for me. Yeah, to have a say in what goes on, yeah, we can vote. I mean, I don't know. No, you don't have a vote local level, do you? As Europeans, we have a vote in the municipal. 
so I can vote, but mine is in my village, so I couldn't vote in the Poitiers, which is possibly the one that would have been more important for me with the business. But voting, yeah, voting in a, in, in referendums and, and presidential elections would be. And also just to just, I mean, we've been here for how many years now to have the second passport and, and just show that, you know, I've been living and paying my taxes and, and contributing to this society for over many years. This is home now? I think it is, yeah. Although how much is anywhere home, depending on what happens. But yeah, I mean... When you've got your, your house, your kids, and your job, and your wife in a country. That's a lot of the boxes ticked. That's a lot of the boxes ticked. Doesn't mean we couldn't move away and do something else at some stage. But yeah, it's home for now, yeah. I asked Peter this question to finish, in fact, the interview with him. It was, do you consider yourself French, Irish, a mixture of both? Or perhaps you don't even ask yourself the question. Whether you're... I don't think I've ever asked myself the question. I would consider myself Irish, living in France, still. So I've been here, what, 15 odd years? To get French citizenship, if you had to give up your Irish citizenship, would you be willing to do that? If I had to give yeah, up my that's Irish? Right. Like, no. Some countries don't allow dual. Yeah, you know. no, I wouldn't. Well, unless it meant that I couldn't live here anymore, which would be a difficult, that would be a hard one to, to, yeah. No, I wouldn't, no. But I definitely consider myself Irish, still consider myself Irish living in France. Um, but it's funny, you said at the very start, uh, whatever way you put it, that you come to, you know, you've been here for how many odd years and you're looking for ways to, to, to evolve that. Uh, I remember saying to Pete after about five or six years, uh, I'm still getting a great buzz out of being in France. And, and, and he, with a couple of years living in France, more than me can look to me and said, yeah, that lasts for a while. And I never kind of understood what he meant. And then kind of five years, you know, 10 years down the line, I went, yeah, he's right. It does kind of wear off a little bit after a while. The novelty of being in France and being in another country. So it's becoming more and more my country, I suppose, and becoming more and more. But there's still, there's still, you know, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm 100% Irish and, and spent a majority, a vast majority of my life in English speaking countries. It's a good question because when you spent the majority of your life in a French-speaking country, which way does it go? You know, in 30, 30 years, for example, if I'm still here, it'd be interesting to know if I still feel Irish or French. One thing you seem to have escaped, and the same goes for Peter, and I hope for myself, is that we've more or less managed to avoid losing our English or our English becoming a, a sort of a mix of English and French or English yeah. with French kind of structure or yeah. French words here and there. I mean, of course, sometimes we it's hard. can't find the right word. Yeah, yeah. Well, you heard a couple of times that I was speaking there, slip into a French word because it's more easily accessible or it's an easier way of saying something. But I still get mocked when I go home to the lads they, when I'm making my sentences and I can't, and I'm kind of stumbling with them and they, they tell me I can't speak English anymore. And then interestingly, when I come back to France, it takes me a day or two to get back into proper French rhythm as well. So you still find kind of that find that in between kind of limbo. But no, I mean, I suppose what helps is that I speak to the kids in English all day. So I'm using my English a lot. Um, and what's fun with them as well is, is is coming up with Irish phrases or expressions that they've never heard before. And Dorothy as well, because you're teaching them stuff that would get a laugh at home, but they're not laughing because they don't know it yet. And you explain the meaning of it and you go through the story. And then you... So you, I'm still kind of dipping in and out of all that culture. And, and it's great fun when you get them to talk to your parents, then throw out an Irish expression or an Irish word or something. And that's always good crack. Well, thank you very much for your time today. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Good stuff. Thank you. So thanks again, Mark. It really was a pleasure and an honor to be admitted to the Cluricom Cafe's upstairs office, its inner sanctum. Our conversation actually took place a few months ago, in early October 2020, a couple of weeks before France's second COVID-19 lockdown, which, among other restrictions, shut all bars and restaurants across the country. So the dark period, the hard winter that Mark spoke of, has definitely come to pass, as the Cluricom Café has been unable to reopen, even after lockdown was lifted. So I'd like to wish Mark and Peter and all the Cluricom team all the best for this new year. I hope they'll be able to open their doors again to the public very soon. 
On my way out of the pub after our conversation, Mark kindly gave me a Chloroform Brew Pub t-shirt, offering me a choice between the French or English version. I chose the English with a paraphrased Samuel Beckett quote on the back. Bior first, think later. It's the natural order. I hope I'm getting the pronunciation right. Being shamefully unfamiliar with most of Beckett's work, despite the three books of his I have on my bookshelves, I don't know where the original quote comes from. But in trying to look it up, I came across another quote of his that feels to me like some sort of relevant and important reminder as we traverse these difficult times. It's from an early essay he wrote called Proust, Proust with the French pronunciation. The creation of the world did not take place once and for all time, but takes place every day. I like the idea. The French version of the Chloroform Brew Pub t-shirt, the one that I didn't choose, also had a quote on the back, something said by Xavier, a long-time friend of the pub and now part owner, I believe. It's simple. Tout va bien se passer. I hope he's right. Until next time, take care.